I'm Greg Dalton, and today on Climate One, we're talking about cleaning up capitalism. Burning fossil fuels is driving severe weather that is hitting economies around the world. Yet global subsidies of dirty energy hit half a trillion dollars in 2012. Half a trillion. Many companies and countries are moving to switch from running on fumes to running on the sun, plants, and other clean energy. But that transition is not happening fast enough to stabilize the Earth's operating system that enables the global economy. Over the next hour, we'll discuss the cost of our addiction to dirty fuels and the rights of poor countries as well as future generations. Joining our live audience at the Commonwealth Club in San Francisco, we're pleased to welcome the distinguished economist Nicholas Stern. Lord Stern is chairman of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment at the London School of Economics. He's president of the British Academy and a former chief economist of the World Bank. Lord Stern is here today to receive the 2013 Stephen Schneider Award for Outstanding Climate Science Communication, presented by Climate One, in memory of the late Stanford climatologist Stephen Schneider. Please welcome Lord Stern to Climate One. Lord Stern, welcome to Climate One. Thank you, Greg. You're a famous economist. We're going to talk about the global economy, but I first want to ask you a question about my car. Um, I got this 13-year-old car, and it it's European, not American. They make not British. Sorry. Um, (laughs) Runs on gasoline. It's kind of dirty. My family's used to it. I'd like to buy an electric car, but the technology's changing. I'd like the price to come down a little bit. What should I do with my car? Should I keep running it for a little while, or should I switch to something, the new technology? Well, <clears throat> since this is uh, NPR, I can always call Car Talk and get some... You uh, like that? Yeah, <laughs> my son loves exactly. Yeah. A lot of car talk in my house, yes. Um, but I, and I wouldn't uh, anticipate what answer you might get. But the, <laughs> the, the, those timing questions do do bear thinking about. I, I had an old car which was nearly 20 before it uh, fell apart. And so my question was, do I try to, you know, do I buy my Prius now or do I wait a bit and perhaps it will be a better one? And uh, I did some back-of-the-envelope stuff on uh, what uh, scrapping the car a bit earlier would cost relative to scrapping it a bit later. And uh, those are the kinds of things that are worth uh, are worth doing because technical progress is changing so rapidly is changing what's possible so rapidly. It's, it may be that uh, you should just wait a little bit, scrap it later on, and buy something that's uh, really super efficient. But it, it depends on you know how fast you think your car's going to fall apart. And uh, I wouldn't dream of telling you uh, the answer to that question. Well. Uh, economies face the same question about how to invest in uh, the cost of doing something today versus, versus a future cost. You wrote a very famous economic report, the Stern Review. But tell us the, the, the headline of that, for the cost of doing something today versus the cost of, of doing something in the future, and how we ought to look at that. Well, the headline was that the cost of uh, inaction is much bigger than the cost of action. Uh, in other words, the damage we do by waiting in terms of build-up of greenhouse gases is likely to be much bigger than the investment costs that uh, we have to incur now. And to get that kind of answer, you have to um, turn to the science to try to understand what the costs of inaction are going to be. Uh, 
uh, you have to look at um, the investments and uh, how much they're going to cost. But even putting aside um, questions of uh, how rapidly we're going to learn, even putting, even including the great uh, uncertainties in the whole system, that answer, um, the cost of inaction, is much bigger than the cost of action, is pretty robust to the, any sort of reasonable assumptions that uh, you ought to put in. I noted that there's half a trillion dollars in uh, subsidies for fossil fuels every year. Do we know how much climate disruption is costing the global economy today? Actually, the number might be a bit bigger than that because there's a recent study by the IMF published uh, this spring. The fossil fuel subsidy yeah. is bigger than half a trillion? Yeah. yeah. If, you, if you look at – those are really the explicit ones. Um, if you look at uh, the implicit ones through letting people um, use their uh, uh, use their uh, appliances, their cars, their heating without paying for um, the damage they do, as uh, Steve Schneider said, if you let, if you allow people to use the atmosphere as a sewer, essentially uh, you're not charging them for uh, the damage that they're doing. You would normally expect to pay for wastewater um, because it's a cost to manage it, but you're not paying for the uh, carbon dioxide, greenhouse gases you're throwing into the atmosphere. And the IMF quite rightly said, well, that's a subsidy. Letting people to do something for nothing when that something is damaging, that's correctly counted as a subsidy. There's all the congestion associated when uh, you use your cars and slow other people down by using your cars. So the IMF quite properly took a broader view of what constitutes a subsidy, and they came to a much larger figure than, uh, than that. So the subsidy essentially uh, direct and through these uh, processes of not charging for uh, people uh, causing damage, those subsidies are really very, uh, very large. And the damage that comes, now the damage that comes is not immediate, the damage comes with, um, with lags. But if you look at the damage that uh, is going on, it uh, is uh, much bigger than the kinds of numbers that we're talking about in this case. But what we can say is those kinds of numbers that we've described, half a, bit, you know, half a trillion or a trillion, would lead to a tremendous amount of investment that could radically reduce the risk. So I would make those two comparisons. One comparison with the damage that's being done by the uh, uh, greenhouse gas emissions that that encourages, but also with the kind of investment costs that are necessary. And you could do a great deal with a trillion dollars a year. It, it may be a trillion dollars a year is about the extra investment that we would need. Uh, it's a little over 1% of world GDP, uh, trillion dollars, world GDP 70 or 80 trillion. It's the kind of number which captures the investment we need. So instead of throwing it at hydrocarbons, if you put it much more sensibly and much more measured way into the right kind of investment, that itself would uh, give you the kind of scalar response that you need. So the money's there as a matter of reallocating it. About four years ago, the G20 group of countries in Pittsburgh pledged to reduce fossil fuel subsidies. Uh, is that happening at all, or is that just talk from uh, heads of state? It's happening slowly. Uh, uh, in China, they're starting to move um, prices to more reasonable levels. Um, 
there's some charging for carbon and, in other words, removing the implicit subsidy of letting people pollute for nothing. There's some movement, but my guess is that uh, that number has not radically, has not been radically reduced. So as an economist, uh, there's a couple ways to go. There's to make brown energy more expensive or to make green energy less expensive. Which is the better way? You've got a bit of each. Um, you should certainly charge people for the damage they do. This is about getting markets to work. And uh, the language we used in the Stern Review is that uh, um, abandoning or having no policy of any serious uh, strength uh, on uh, climate change is essentially to um, do nothing about the biggest market distortion, the biggest market failure the world has ever seen. So it's very important to see the role of the market here where if we tax carbon, if we regulate, if we have carbon markets, whatever method we might use or combination of methods uh, we're using, what we're doing is trying to make the market work better. Because if people see the damage that they do in the incentives that they face, they'll make decisions which are much better for the world as a whole. So this is about making markets work well. And you've got to face people with the damage that they do. I mean, if you go and buy a meal, you expect to pay for the food, you expect to pay for the space in the restaurant if you're, uh, if you're eating out. Um, you expect to pay for the costs that arise because of your action. If you're not paying for the costs that arise because of your action, here, the emission of uh, greenhouse gases, you're going to do too much of that thing. And that's a market failure. So correcting that market failure is fundamental. So you've got to tax the damage or uh, have regulation on the damage that's being done. At the same time, these other technologies are in a very early stage. If I try out some renewable, if it fails or if it succeeds, other people learn from the uh, investments and actions that I've been taking. So that is a benefit for other people, that kind of discovery. So there's very powerful economic reasons, both for taxing the dirty stuff and for encouraging the newer, more experimental stuff that we're learning about. And both arguments sound economics based on um, trying to get market signals right. So this story of, um, in this case, let's call it, say we do it through the carbon tax, uh, on the one side, and encouraging say, renewables on the other, to accelerate that learning process. Both those things are market-friendly uh, actions. You need both of them. There are very sound economic reasons for doing both of them. Then why are so many companies against it? And they would say that it'll raise the cost of energy, it'll hurt people, it'll hurt jobs, it'll hurt the economy. What you're doing is, is switching over from one kind of activity to another kind of activity. So there's some dislocation in that process. But we've already seen in, in the uh, United States, for example, the jobs in renewables are much bigger than, say, the jobs in coal. Much bigger. So what you've got to do is ask, are you going to encourage this move or are you going to encourage that move? It's, there's going to be change. There's going to be dislocation. But when you try to answer that question, what you've got to focus on is... Um, what the benefit over the medium term is going to be and what kind of dislocation there's going to be over the short term and how you manage it. But we've now happily moved to a point where the kind of jobs you see in, uh, in renewables are rather bigger than the jobs you see elsewhere. So trying to switch back would actually be more disruptive than keeping going down a path 
which is going to lead to real returns, real discovery for everybody in the longer term. If this is uh, so clearly logical, then why isn't it happening? Is it a failure of the political system? Um, I think most of the delay, and delay is extremely dangerous in, in this context, most of the delay is down to absence of political will. And we can see that arising from a number of sources. The recession has diverted attention. I, mean, I don't know how many ideas politicians can keep in their head at one time. But, um, re-election, it, re-election, re-election. Yeah, it, it, it's, uh, it seems it's limited. And, you know, if you have a, a huge crisis of the kind we did have, that has consumed attention and diverted it away from the uh, uh, still bigger medium-term problems as a result of climate change. You've got uh, quite an effective um, uh, creation of doubt and uncertainty from uh, climate deniers, and uh, they've run a pretty good campaign. I mean, a dishonest and disreputable campaign, but they've run it quite uh, effectively. You've got uh, opposition from those who have strong vested interests in the uh, in in that area. So these are the kinds of reasons I think why we've moved so slowly and why the political will is uh, not nearly as strong as it should be. And of course, that turns the spotlight onto the question of how do you uh, stimulate that political will or get people to ch- tune into this program is one. Uh, and the translation of public opinion, which supports some action on climate, it, the public opinion is not translated into political will. Uh, so I think that's a test of democracy, a failure of, the, of political s- systems. What do you think? I think it, it's also, uh, we have to look at ourselves and ask ourselves, have we done a good enough job at uh, communicating? I mean, we need uh, a lot more Steve Schneiders to, uh, to tell the story, tell the story well. We need uh, serious teaching in schools, and I, I do think that it's improving around the world, the teaching in schools, so that young people get a chance to look quietly at the message. They're not just seeing it coming at them in sort of snippets, uh, here and there, because it does take a little time to think uh, think about those issues, but it also needs leadership, and it needs uh, leaders who are going to say, "I've looked ahead. This is of great importance. This is the way we should go." So it's a combination of pressure from people who see the issues uh, clearly, and it's our job to help clarity in that analysis. But it needs to come from the top as well. And there've been moments, you know, uh, five, six seven years ago, where it looked as if that leadership was coming on quite strongly, but then I think it faded, particularly around the story of the, uh, the recession. One person involved in the UK government, uh, Owen Patterson, is the environment secretary. Uh, he plays down climate change, and he even called climate scientists irresponsible and immoral. So what's your view of the Cameron government on this issue? Well, I would invite Mr. Patterson, if he's discovered new results in science, to um, <laughs> overturn uh, 200 years of serious work, he should send them immediately to the uh, scientific uh, journals. I mean, he's also the gentleman that uh, blamed the badgers for moving the goalposts when their attempt to cull the badgers didn't work very well in the uh, in the UK. So, I, I, and. Uh, uh, I'm not sure his scientific credentials are terribly strong. (laughs) Who is a climate leader in the UK or in Europe right now? Well, 
there isn't, I don't think, outstanding leadership on climate at the overall political level um, in the big countries. I think it's fair to say that the Northern European Scandinavian countries have been pretty steady uh, on uh, this issue. Um, Sweden's had a carbon tax since the 70s. They learned the lesson of the first oil shock. Of um, over 100 euro, well over $100 uh, a tonne of uh, CO2. And, you know, Denmark, Europe, Denmark, Sweden, have, have Norway have been cutting have been cutting their emissions. So I would point there to the leadership. But looking forward, what we'd like to see is the Angela Merkel of 2007. Uh, She was a a real leader in 2007, got the EU to move strongly to the targets of cutting cutting by 20% Europe's emissions between 1990 and 2020. She's a nuclear scientist. She understands the arguments. This coalition that she's now forming and with uh, the Social Democrats, the so-called Grand Coalition. The Social Democrats will be led by uh, Zygmar Gabriel. I'm sorry to burden you with European politics here, but it is important. Uh, he was a former environment minister under the previous Grand Coalition with Angela Merkel at that, at that time. So it's possible, it's possible that Germany could reinvigorate the leadership. So what we need is the Angela Merkel of 2007. And... What about U.S. leadership? John McCain was a leader in 2005. That's changed. President Obama is not as solid as he once was on this issue? Uh, like many of you, I still remember that uh, speech in, in, uh, in, in Chicago on the night of the first election where um, I think it was Alice Nixon Cooper who was 106 or, or something and he asked the question, what if... What if my girls live as long as uh, she does? What kind of uh, planet are they, uh, are they going to see? And he spoke of a planet in peril as one of the key issues of the time. And it'd be very, but we'd, it has been a bit disappointing. But I think we saw in the Georgetown speech in uh, Georgetown University in, in June a recommitment for the second uh, term. So if we have a combination of the Barack Obama in Grant Park on the night of the election and uh, uh, the Barack Obama of the Georgetown speech in June this year, if they go arm in arm, those two Barack Obamas, then it might start to move. But, you know, I'm not an expert on uh, U.S. politics, and I've learned that speaking about U.S. politics in an English accent doesn't necessarily... um, (laughs) Get, get you very far. Um, but when I'm outside the US trying to get people to understand that actually some things are happening in the uh, US, you, t- you speak about California. You speak about New York's emissions per capita being half the United States and Beijing's emissions per capita being twice those of, of uh, China. You speak about the Pew analysis that suggests that about half of U.S. GDP is generated in cities and states which have, you know, reasonable climate policies. So it seems to me that uh, what you're looking for in terms of change in the United States is cities, states, some far-sighted companies also, and and actions that don't require a lot of legislation in Congress. And if I understood the, the June speech in Georgetown University, that was the message that uh, 
Barack Obama's offering, there's a great deal that we can do without taking uh, legislation through Congress, and that's what we should do. We're talking about the economics of climate change at Climate One with uh, Nicholas Stern, an economist from the London School of Economics. I'm Greg Dalton. You've written about the waves of innovation, talking about things that don't require government action, uh, industrial, then steam, and then steel, then oil and cars, information technology, and clean technology. So put that in perspective for us in terms of what technology can do to drive the kind of change that doesn't rely on government. If you look back at the uh, big waves of technological change, I mean, some people call them industrial revolutions, but waves of technological change, going back to, you know, as you described, from mechanization of textiles at the end of the 18th century and um, uh, steam and railways, middle of the 19th, electricity and uh, steel at the end of the 19th, you know, going through mass production into the 20th, and, of course, information communications technology at the end of the 20th century, well, who knows if we've even got to the middle of that one. Um, But what you see is two, three, four decades of innovation, investment, discovery, growth. These, there's some things which are destroyed along the way. There's dislocation, uh, waves of technological change, industrial revolutions are like that. You leave some of the old stuff behind and you go on uh, to something something different. Those are very dynamic periods. Now, what we should be looking for is an energy uh, industrial revolution with clean technologies that looks something like that. But I think the difference, uh, of course there are many differences between these different industrial revolutions, but if you look at this one, it does need government policy. If you can get it started then I think we'll find that the waves of innovation and discovery will carry it forward uh, in its own, uh, un- it, with its own momentum. I mean, looking at the, what's happened to the price of solar PV panels over the last seven or eight years, they've been cut by a factor of five, divided by five. And that came about because um, you had support for these installation of these kinds of uh, technologies, which yielded a very powerful response. So once you get these things going, then it seems to me that the cost reduction can uh, have a very powerful momentum to carry it forward. But it does need government policy to get these things going. Well, in the information technology age, uh, the military bought semiconductors. There was government, the, the U.S. Pentagon largely uh, set the foundation for the Internet so that there's precedent for that. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the carbon bubble. There's been a lot of talk recently about assets on the books of fossil fuel companies that uh, their stock price implicitly uh, is built on the expectation that that, those fuels will be burned and that there will be revenue coming from that. Tell us about your view as an economist about that unburnable carbon and a possible carbon bubble. If you take the overall hydrocarbons that uh, are recognized as proven reserves, um, coal, oil, and uh, natural gas. Uh, And if you ask the question, given those declared reserves, a lot of them, of course, in state-owned companies, quite a bit of it (coughs) private companies, and you simply ask, well, take all that and burn it, what would you get? You'd get about two or three times, depending on how you do the arithmetic, you'd get two or three times what we can afford as the overall carbon budget that's left. Um, for a safe level in the climate. For, for something like two degrees to the 50-50 probability. 
two degrees being the, the safe level of warming that, poly, that states and scientists have said is, is a I do think not it's cross e- line. I think it's even a bit strong to call it safe. What the scientists have said is to cross it is dangerous. Okay. Yeah? And, um, and I think that, that difference in that language is important. But if you just say, here is the stuff that's declared. If you burn it, you've got two or three times what uh, the carbon budget uh, is to be consistent with a roughly 50-50 chance of holding to uh, two degrees. That means uh, that either you have to have a very rapid installation of carbon capture and storage or you have to leave half or so in the ground or we break two degrees. It's just simple logic of simple basic consistency. So if the world does accelerate, as we all hope it, uh, many of us hope it will, uh, action to uh, control climate change, it means that there's going to be a capital loss on uh, those things. So I think it's very important to understand that investing in hydrocarbons is a very risky business. And uh, if we're serious about carbon ch- uh, climate change, which I sincerely hope we are and we'll get more serious, then the more risky that uh, investment in hydrocarbons is. You chair an institute founded by a famous uh, money manager, Jeremy Grantham. Does he invest in fossil fuels? Do you invest in fossil fuels? Um, I, 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 I confess I don't know what Jeremy's personal portfolio looks like. He manages assets for uh, other people. And when uh, I don't actually invest in, in anything, um, uh, I have a house, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I have uh, children and uh, grandchildren. But I, on the whole, I, 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 don't, I don't believe I have any shares. I guess that there are one or two pension funds that I'm involved in, and they probably do invest. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course, you have to think about what they invest in, but that's not something you can control directly. The, but you say that investing in fossil fuels is a risky proposition. I interviewed the former president of Shell Oil who was here a few weeks ago and said he thought the, the stock prices of oil companies would be flat to down partially because of this. So if that's going to happen, there's going to be an economic shock to pensioners who have stock in the S&P 500 and the FTSE, et cetera, because a lot of the value, market valuation of our public stock markets is in fossil fuels. And so... Yeah, but that... that with, with industrial revolutions, these kind of things happen. You know, when electricity comes in, those people who've uh, made their money on candles uh, are not going to do are not going to do so well. Buggy whips during yeah, and, you know, horses and cars and this kind of thing. That's the kind of change that we don't want to be offhand or cynical and say, oh well, so what? But we have to recognise that those kinds of changes are, are necessary and manage them as uh, as best we can. But not changing, because some place will be dislocated, is a recipe for disaster here. What about the... You've written about green growth, and there's a billion people around the world who don't have access to, to energy. There's a lot of people who aspire to the uh, Western lifestyle that you and I enjoy and everyone listening to this and in, the, in this room. Is there a right to emit? Is there a carbon... Uh, what right do people in poor countries have to grow in the way, uh, have the material wealth that we have? I don't think there's any right to emit. I think there's a right to development, uh, a right to find ways of uh, increasing 
your income, but to admit is to damage. I don't see that there's a right to damage. But there is, it seems to me, a right to development. I mean, when we articulate rights, we usually derive them from some notion of common humanity, some basic sense in which humans are equal. I mean, that's, after all, the way your uh, Declaration of Independence, your constitution is based. It's trying to articulate a sense in which people are equal as common human beings, what common humanity means. It seems to me that a right to seek, seek ways to better yourself, a right to development, would be something which we could sit down and discuss, and we'd want to articulate that. I think I would, anyway, as a right. But that's not the same as a right to emit. And what we have to try to do is to break the relationship between consumption and production on the one hand and emissions on the other. Unless we do that, we're in deep trouble. I mean, if we stopped right here at 50 billion uh, tonnes per annum of CO2 equivalent as world emissions, that's way above the level that's consistent with uh, holding to two degrees with a 50-50 chance. You couldn't just stop. That wouldn't be anywhere near enough. You've got to bring that 50 billion uh, uh, tons of CO2 equivalent a year that we're emitting as a world down to well below 20, about 40 years from now. So that tells us very clearly we have to break the relationship between consumption and production on the one hand and emissions on the other. If we do that, and I, we can see how to do it, you know, we can we can see how you know through energy efficiency, through switching to uh, renewables, there are many ways to stopping deforestation, regrading. Uh, regrading degraded forests the whole raft of things that we can see which do help us break that relationship between consumption and production and emissions if we do that then we've found a route to raising living standards in the uh, uh, around the world and particularly in the poorest parts of the world and that seems to me our duty as people in rich countries, to help that process take place. You can't tell people, I'm sorry, fellas, before we realise the problem, we filled the atmosphere up, it's all too late, you've got to stop right there. There's no way that we should say that. There's no way that uh, that would be equitable or decent. But what we can do is offer something much better and is to work out, is to work and with the developing countries of the world because they'll discover lots of these things too, find ways of doing things differently. Does that mean that rich companies have a responsibility to write checks, to send money to poor countries, to acquire clean technologies, to develop in a cleaner way than, than uh, the fossil fuel uh, fueled uh, industrial revolution that we benefited from? There's a whole range of things that uh, we in rich countries do. We should reduce our own emissions, and in so doing, we'll discover ways which, uh, which uh, other people can look at and share. Um, we should uh, invest in R&D that's going to help, help that uh, process. And I think we are obligated to uh, help finance change in other parts of the world which are poorer than uh, we are. But you can do that in various ways. You can do that uh, uh, at, at government level. You can do that at uh, individual philanthropic level. But the helping of change in, developing, in the developing world does seem to me to be fundamental. And that is a a big part of the story. But the good news is that there are lots of options out there. I mean, it, let me just give you one example. There's a, there's a company called Selco in Bangalore in Karnataka in uh, South India. Now, this is a, a major state with you know, a, a population of 50, 60 million people or more. And um, uh, 
this company takes, brings microfinance and small-scale solar PV and helps people uh, to buy that uh, solar PV which, uh, and provides the microfinance. That can help them run a store. That can uh, give light for the kids to work at night and study. It can be a major transformation in people's lives. And that's an example of the way in which good microfinance and uh, solar, in this case, uh, solar PV, can help transform and give people access to um, electricity when you know, you've got uh, a few hundred million people in India with no access to electricity at all. So these are the kinds of ways in which uh, you can help the whole process of movement out of poverty um, through ways which don't um, uh, destroy the environment. Like many countries went straight to cell phones, People, some countries could leapfrog over fossil fuels and go to, yeah. go, go to cleaner technology. When Nelson Mandela passed away, there was a lot of some co- connections between, uh, at one point, South Africa, the situation for, for uh, majority rule looked hopeless, and yet he persevered and some very positive things happened. I'd like to have your thoughts on the passing of Mandela and any inspiration or lessons you took from him and what happened in South Africa and what a broader community faces in terms of moving from fossil fuels, which seems so difficult. It seems impossible. It was a, it was a very moving uh, thing for me. I mean, my generation in, in the UK, um, the anti-apartheid movement, was a, absolutely central to our political activity. Uh, it was the first, for many of us, the first kind of political act that uh, that we made in the in the 1960s to join the demonstrations uh, against uh, apartheid. Um, President Obama said the same thing. It was his first political yeah, act. I'm, I'm a bit older than him. Okay. Um, <laughs> uh, the uh, I was in Wembley Stadium in 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 London to celebrate his 70th birthday, and then a few years later um, uh, there was another celebration at Wembley Stadium, but this time Nelson Mandela was there. I met him personally three times, uh, once when I was chief economist of the uh, World Bank, and the, uh, the, uh, the aura and uh, dignity, but also personal humanity, was, was quite extraordinary. I mean, it, it, the most uh, uh, extraordinary person that I've ever met, and I met him a couple of times uh, after that. So it, it, it's, uh, it was a very moving few days for, for many of us. I mean, there are many people who knew him far better than, than I ever did. But the example of um, a common dignity, I mean, he could see the common humanity and the common dignity in the people who were oppressing him and his people. Um, he could see how, if we change our behavior, we can make an enormous difference and he showed how to do that through very clear analytical thought um, extraordinarily intelligent man and very strong personal example so this is the kind of common humanity serious analysis uh, ability to collaborate personal example these are the kinds of leadership that we need a uh, on, on this issue. So I, I think it's a very significant example for all the reasons I described. And he forgave his jailers, and uh, I think he invited one of his jailers or police officers to his inauguration. There was a forgiveness there. Some people in the environmental movement want to villainize, 
fossil fuel executives. Uh, is that the right path? No. Um, what we have to do is to change the incentives in society, change our values, change our taxes. Um, there are quite a lot of people in uh, oil companies who uh, take this issue uh, very, very seriously indeed. Some of the big oil companies use an internal price of carbon of 30 or $40 uh, a tonne of CO, CO2. Um, it's a question of, of how we manage the change. And if we get the priorities right in society, I think the energy companies would um, follow through on the right kind of incentives. But what you've got to do is not only get those incentives right, but keep them credible. And what we've seen around the world, and it's been very damaging, is um, instability, changing of mind. You give a subsidy one day, you take it away uh, the next. You have a carbon price in Europe up here for a while, and then suddenly uh, you let it uh, crack, crash down. Uh, that kind of policy instability means you don't get an investment really uh, to the right kind of levels of any kind. And one of the consequences of that is you see you know, uh, capacity start to get very near to uh, uh, margins in Europe where you risk uh, blackouts and, and so on. So I don't think you have to see people who run this company or that company as a villain. I think what you have to do is to bring coalitions together to get the right kind of a policy to fix these market failures as uh, we discussed uh, earlier on and then the investment processes uh, will flow. What I do think is villainous is to secretly fund uh, dishonest treatments of science. That's a different kind of question. And to personally attack scientists, uh, a lot of scientists, we have some in the room here, uh, who suffer personal uh, personal attacks. Would you put that, how would you look at that? It's unacceptable. And uh, uh, that is the kind of behavior which uh, I think uh, we should expect to get some kind of protection from. But it's very hard to design protection from that kind of uh, abuse and death threats and, uh, and so on. Um, it's usually done surreptitiously, anon- anonymously, and uh, it's very difficult on, in the blog, unsigned on the blogosphere. Um, it's very difficult to give people that kind of protection, um, protect the kind of protection that you would think would be reasonable. Uh, if identifiable people physically threaten you, you'd expect uh, the law to take its course. If a whole load of unidentifiable people threaten you, it's, no, it's, very, hard, it's very hard to do that. So most uh, scientists and some social scientists have to just uh, carry on and keep going. And uh, I salute those, uh, those, who, uh, those who do that. And there are some of those people in the room. They've shown enormous personal integrity, strength of character, and they just keep going. And of course, Steve Schneider was, uh, was one of those. Our guest today at Climate One is Nicholas Stern, former chief economist of the World Bank. I'm Greg Dalton. This is Climate One. Uh, there's often an elephant in the room, population. A lot of environmentalists don't like to talk about population. It's not our issue. Uh, but the, the reality is that consumption, the global economy, is largely a factor of how many people are burning fossil fuels, eating food, etc. So what's your view on population and can anything be done about 9 billion people on the earth by 2050? Well, you have to look at 
the basics of why population populations grow. And uh, one fundamental reason is that uh, people are living longer because um, various diseases have been er- eradicated. Many people are able to uh, have more food and, uh, and cleaner water. So I'm assuming that if we're discussing population policy, we are not discussing increasing death rates. I mean, free cigarettes for the over 50s or something would be no, a policy. That, so, I, uh, so let's put increasing death rates to one side, at least I will, and uh, put increasing death rates. So it then comes down to birth rates. And um, what causes reductions in birth rates? Well, we've seen quite extraordinary reductions in uh, fertility over the last uh, 35 years or so. I mean, if you look at Bangladesh, um, completed family size, number of uh, uh, children per woman, has gone down from, you know, numbers like uh, five and a half or six down to numbers like two and a half. It's amazing in in about 35 years. Why? Well, uh, we more or less understand the main reasons for that. Um, education of girls and women, more opportunities in the labour force uh, for girls. Well, you hope for women, or the girls are at school. Um, property rights, which allow different kinds of security, lowering infant mortality rates, lowers the birth rate, and of course access to reproductive health care. Those are the five or six factors that, as far as we can understand, and I think the evidence is quite strong, account for these dramatic reductions in birth, in birth rates. Iran, quite similar figures to Bangladesh, but you, you see that around the world, dropping in India too, dropping a bit less slowly in Africa. Now, those things, reducing the infant mortality rates, offering uh, education to uh, girls and women, access to reproductive health care, these seem to me to be things which have very powerful ex- arguments in their favour already. These are basic rights, particularly of uh, women and girls. And we should be pushing those things still more strongly for all those reasons. And climate change adds a bit to that. But I think the more, in this case, the arguments on basic human rights for women and girls are so powerful that that's where we uh, should be concentrating. The reason then that we're going to see this rise from about 7 billion now to 9 billion plus maybe in 2050, uh, partly because we see the uh, life expectancy to carry on increasing and partly because you've got um, a lot of women in childbearing age and that's a a follow-on from the way in which the demographics have, have developed. So basically I would intensify because they're good things anyway, action on all those uh, dimensions that uh, I've described. But I think you would want to argue that, even if you've never heard of climate change. Before we go to audience questions, I want to ask you about economic growth. There's a school of thought which holds that, well, it started the Club of Rome in the 70s, had it put forward some thoughts about the constraint or the, the limits to growth. And some people think that because of the financial debt that's accumulated, as well as the carbon debt and resource constraints that will put limits in the future on economic growth, which has solved lots of political and social problems in the past. What's your view on the future of growth? Will it be as robust as it has been in the past? 
Probably not. Um, but I think if we're looking at the next 30 or 40 years, uh, you're not going to deal with the uh, issues of climate change and cutting emissions largely through stopping growth. You've got to break the link between consumption and production on the one hand and emissions on the other. Because even if that's going back to an answer I gave earlier, even if you stopped growth right here, right now, uh, which you couldn't do anyway, but it, even if you did, at 50 billion tonnes of CO2 equivalent per annum, we're two and a half times where we need to be uh, four decades from now. So once we move fast on cutting at uh, breaking that relationship between consumption, production and emissions, then it seems to me uh, there is uh, the opportunity, as there should be, for people in developing countries to raise uh, their living standards. Already, uh, something like two-thirds of the world's investment is in emerging and uh, developing markets. So it's greening that process that seems to me to be of fundamental importance. And I think that uh, trying to stop growth would be um, uh, politically impossible. It would undermine support for um, cleaner and greener uh, policies. And if you look at the living standards of people in the developing world, it would be unethical. And just to clarify, the thesis is not that government should try to limit growth. It's that growth will be limited by factors including uh, debt, uh, resource overexpansion, et cetera. It's not that we will try to do it, it that it, it will happen because of forces. In There'll be some slowing down in growth um, because we've gone through a particularly rapid period with recovery after the uh, Second World War in the rich countries and then a period, um, you know, China dates from... Deng Xiaoping's um, more liberal policies in uh, the end of the 70s, beginning of the 80s. They're running, as it were, their course. The process of catch-up is uh, it's not finished, but it, you know, as you get nearer, it's uh, less powerful. So I think there are reasons to think, and you've got ageing population in some countries too. So I think there are reasons to think that growth rates uh, will slow down. But you keep coming back to the fundamental question, is breaking that link between consumption and production on the one hand and emissions on the other. That's the key story. We're talking about the global economy with Nicholas Stern, former chief economist of the World Bank and a professor at the London School of Economics. Uh, let's have our audience question. Welcome to Climate One. Thank you very much for a great show. I'm Warren Karlenzig, and I wanted to ask Professor Stern uh, when he foresaw a global price on carbon being set, and what sort of indicators can we look at over the next few years uh, that will indicate we're, we're heading in that direction? Besides this political will of leaders like Governor Brown, who's standing there, uh, what are we looking for to, to get to that model? Uh, good examples. Um, you've got seven provinces in China which are um, experimenting with carbon markets. You've got the example of... Uh, California, you've got the northeast uh, states. Uh, I hope that the European ca carbon market will uh, be resuscitated. It was absurd that we let it uh, collapse, and the basic reason, and you, you don't have to be a professor at the LSE to work out that if you give out too many permits, the price is going to crash. And when, uh, we had the when we had the recession and slowdown in, uh, in, in Europe, that would have been the moment to reduce the number of permits. They didn't do that, and the price of 
carbon collapsed. So understand why that happens. I say you'd have to be very clever to uh, to work that out. So I think uh, if this is going to move forward with good examples. And uh, I, I'm quite happy with a carbon tax. Um, and if you ask me to choose between a carbon tax and and a carbon market, I'd probably go for the carbon tax, but you know I wouldn't get overexcited about it. Whichever uh, seems to work best in the in the environment that uh, that you're in. So there, I think we shouldn't give up hope. I mean, actually, we have an increasing number of examples. What we need is uh, is political determination to make them uh, work well. And I think you're going to find that in California, I believe. Let's have our next audience question from Nicholas Stern. You talked about a lack of political will, and we know that the facts on science and climate science are here. So if the facts of climate science won't change political will, what will? And if not political will, then who's the most important party's um, mind to change? I think you've got to do two things. It's crucial that people understand the risks. I mean, the the risks, as, as we know, are colossal. These are existential risks for big parts of the world's uh, population. Uh, we're the first generation which, through our negligence, could uh, uh, devastate the relationship between human beings and, and the planet. And we have to understand the consequences, the potential consequences of you know, 3, 4, 5 degrees centigrade. And we look to the scientists uh, to help us do that and working with them, social scientists as well. So the first part of the story is uh, making it clear that those risks are enormous. But that's not sufficient. The second part of the story is to be able to show that there are ways of changing that are actually very attractive. If you look at um, energy efficiency, if you look at renewables, alternative ways of doing things, if you look at stopping uh, deforestation, what you'll see is a world that looks, uh, in terms of its consumption and production, cleaner, quieter, safer, um, more biodiverse, and actually more community-oriented, because a lot of the things that we need to do we'll be doing in a community. You can't reuse and recycle other than in a community. So a powerful description of what this alternative way of doing things looks like, and as we do that, I think we'll see that it's much more uh, attractive than the uh, old way of doing things. So you have to put those two things together. The second part of the story needs strong examples and I think you're starting to get in some cities some sectors examples of how uh, how that uh, could work but as I said it needs courageous political leadership it needs good teaching in schools bring on the next generation but I'm not, we can't give up we can't just say oh this political will stuff it's all too difficult it's not going to happen well if that's what you really believe you know then get a hat and write a letter of apology to your grandchildren <laughs> Nelson Mandela showed that impossible things can happen. Let's have our next question for Nicholas Stern. Yes, thank you so much, sir, for coming all this way to speak with us. I'm Peter Joseph with uh, Citizens Climate Lobby, uh, trying to get a revenue-neutral carbon tax in through the United States Congress. Good luck. Uh, Many times we – what I really want to know is what's going to happen with Downton Abbey and their financial situation. But more to the point – I've got bored with Downton Abbey, but – I did watch it for a bit. Many people say if we have a carbon tax in this country, it will disadvantage American industry because no one seems to understand the border tax adjustment, 
Could you educate us on how that might work, how if the U.S. showed leadership, other countries might follow? The first thing to understand is that for the vast majority of um, economic activity, uh, the energy costs are modest. I mean, basic energy would cost, would be equivalent to about 5% of GDP. If you put that up, say, by 20% for a while, whilst you learn about these alternative technologies, that's a one-off, 1%, one-off, 1% kick upwards in your costs. That doesn't lead people to move on scale. We looked in the Stern Review, other people looked at it. Um, Environmental migration of industry is very limited if you look in uh, the data. Why? Because there are other things that are much bigger. I mean, labor costs, labor productivity, real uh, exchange rates, uh, those are much bigger. The investment climate, how difficult it is to uh, do business and so on. Those are the big things that determine where people... um, locate. So it's really only for just uh, three or four industries that the price of energy story is is really significant. So the first thing to do is to really look at those competitiveness questions carefully and when you do, you'll see that those arguments uh, uh, are really associated with a very narrow range of industries and I think it would be quite wrong to let that tail wag uh, the overall dog. So be more analytical, be more empirical. Most of the stuff about competitiveness is is slogans without analysis and without uh, uh, detailed uh, cost calculations. There will be some places, you know, like steel and uh, aluminium and petrochemicals and paper. It really, there are only four or so, and they're not really big parts of the economy. Now, I don't want to say forget them, but it's much better to manage change in those areas rather than let the difficulty of change in those areas block progress on something as important, uh, as important as this. I do think that sometime down the track for, a, for countries or groups of countries to say that uh, if you try to export stuff to us that's based on dirty production, then we have the right to take that into account uh, at the borders. Uh, we do do that with the... Uh, environment. We do do that with uh, child labour and so on. Those are the kinds of things which are perfectly acceptable under the WTO. But I wouldn't want to rush there. It would be very good if countries that are moving strongly said that, look, there's a group of us that are moving strongly. We have to say that 10 or 15 years down the track, if other people don't join us, if they insist on dirty methods of production, then they are subsidising pollution by not charging for it. And uh, we have to take that into account in the uh, border tax adjustment. I've spent most of my life as an economist fighting protection, protectionism. This actually isn't protectionism. It's, uh, it's, it's correcting for the mispricing elsewhere. We have a few minutes left. Let's have our next question. Welcome to Climate One. Hi. Thank you for being here. My name is Lisa Hoyos, and I run an organization called Climate Parents. We're trying to mobilize parents as a strong political constituency for climate solutions. My question gets to what you've been saying about Nelson Mandela and the issue you raised regarding um, vengeance as it relates to fossil fuel executives versus another way to look at it, which is accountability, because these same characters, if you will, are funding and fleets, legions of lobbyists who I've encountered when we're... It's a David Goliath sort of reality when you're a climate advocate clean air advocate versus a huge um, 
labyrinth of fossil fuel lobbyist power. So in California, we have AB 32, which the governor will hopefully talk about our landmark climate policy, the only state that has it to scale in the U.S., constantly oil lobbyists are going after it. They try to restrain it, push it back, stop key pieces. So I was wondering if you revisited your question about how to deal with oil executives and fossil fuel executives. Um, what's an accountability strategy that you think works? Because at the end of the day, they have so much money, and we have political will and organizing, but it's hard. Thank you. I, you have to get the incentives in society right. Uh, people react to the prices that they see. So given the incentive structures, if people react uh, to them in legal ways, I don't think that you can uh, make them uh, villains. If um, they put money behind the spreading of lies about science, that seems to me a different kind of question and a different kind of uh, accountability. Um, but it's very difficult and in, in some cases dangerous to try to get too heavy and legal about that kind of thing. But how do you distinguish between somebody who's putting behind money behind a case that they really believe in and somebody who's being genuinely uh, dishonest? Now, some of the time we think we can, but it's very hard to imagine a system which you'd find acceptable in terms of, uh, of, of freedom that would... Um, is, that would easily distinguish between the funding of different kind of cases. Now, the question of lobbying is something for um, political systems to try to deal with. It is a big issue now in the UK, is uh, how far and how much do we allow to be spent on lobbying. And I don't think there's uh, an indefinite right to spend indefinite amounts of sums to uh, try to persuade just a few people uh, to vote this way or that way. But articulating that into a legal process is very hard. And I don't want to tell another country, uh, I find it hard to work out how we should do it in in my own country. Um, So I think we have to be a bit careful about the way in which we treat people and the way in which we treat the legality of this. I think it's much better to actually win the argument and win the argument and create the political will by the uh, uh, quality of the arguments that you bring to the table. So I've not given up on democracy. I think we've got a good case and we make it well. Then we have a good chance. And that's where I would uh, focus my energies. But I would deeply disapprove, and I think we ought to expose, those who put money behind telling lies. We have time for one or two more brief questions and brief answers. Welcome to Climate One. This one's pretty brief. Uh, my name is John Mashey. I have a UK-US political comparison question. <clears throat> um, in the US, we have plenty of think tanks which are public charities tax exempt. A whole lot of them are near K Street in Washington, and they've got actually a lot of economists in them, I'm afraid, um, that actually have a fair amount of influence, apparently, on the political process. The only one I know of like that in the UK is Lord Lawson's Global Warming Policy. Policy Foundation. Do they actually have any influence over there, or is that not anything? Yeah, unfortunately, they do. Um, you know, they. Oh, uh, unfortunately, they do, but uh, and they don't disclose where they get their uh, funding from. Um, but you know, they have a right to speak. Uh, their arguments are pretty poor, 
and uh, it's not too hard to uh, show where they're wrong, and that's where we should focus our uh, energies. Next question. Welcome to Climate One. I have a very difficult question for you. It seems that in order to incentivize businesses to change their way, maybe we have to show them how difficult it will be if we had a a world with four degrees Celsius. The World Bank is concerned about a four-degree Celsius world. Kevin Anderson's concerned about it. Uh, I've read Mark Linnaeus's book, Six Degrees, which is devastating to read. But if you look at the kinds of physical changes that will happen with a four-degree Celsius world, can you give us an economic consequences to that so that that might incentivize people to understand just how disastrous that will be? Um, well, there are a number of us who've, who've tried to articulate what that might look like, and you know some of the calculations in the Stern Review were exactly uh, on that point. Um, I think, by the way, most of the economic models um, understate the kind of damages that you would see at four, five, six degrees. I mean, four or five degrees is the difference between where we are now and the last ice age. Ice sheets came down, and forgive this version of latitude, the ice sheets came down to London and uh, people lived closer to the equator than that. That's telling us, surely, that changes of that magnitude are likely to involve massive movements of people. And massive movements of people are likely to involve severe and extended conflict. And uh, you can't have a peace treaty in this case. You can't just turn it off. So I think we have to get much better describing the kind of consequences of four, five, six degrees. But I think actually changing behavior will come through uh, an understanding of what's responsible and it will come through uh, the kind of incentive structures that would be set up by a uh, polity that really had understood not only the magnitude of the risks but also the uh, attractiveness of different ways of doing things. I think just by describing the risks alone, you'll get some change in behavior, but I don't think it'll be big enough to generate the kind of change that we need. You're going to need the policies as well. But an understanding of the risks can help generate the policies, but I've argued earlier, with that, you have to be able to describe and give examples on the very big changes that uh, uh, are necessary and why they look attractive. (coughs) Discovery, innovation, cleaner, quieter, safer... Uh, more community-oriented, more biodiverse, and so on. So making that case is, is absolutely fundamental to getting change. Nicholas Sturmer, at, at the end here, but before we close, I want to ask you, you've been doing this work for a long time, putting uh, work on the cost of fossil fuels, et cetera. Uh, often that's an abstraction for future generations. I'd like you to tell us briefly, your grandfather now, you have two young grandchildren. And how, three, three, three. Three? three. Yeah, yeah. Congratulations. Uh, how... Their presence motivates you and makes it real for you, this, um, this talk about future generations. If you're talking about the conditions of life for people um, 50, 100 years from now, that's not some abstract future generation. You can look them in the eye. And their life uh, should have at least equal weight with yours. And that should be reflected in the action, in your actions. I can't see any ethical reason for distinguishing between people's rights as individuals, the value of their lives, simply to do with the date of birth. And that, I think, is underlined very strongly to you when you uh, uh, look into your grandchildren's eyes. 
We have to end it there. Our thanks to Nicholas Stern, former World Bank Chief Economist, Chair of the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and Environmental and the Environment at London School of Economics and winner of the 2013 Stephen Schneider Award here at Climate One. I'd like to thank you for coming, sir, and also thank you, our audience. Here on the radio, I'm Greg Galford, and this meeting of Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is now over. Uh, Please stay seated. We are going to uh, do a couple of things. Uh, first, I'd like to uh, invite a member of the Schneider Award jury, Larry Goulder, to come up and uh, introduce a brief video. So, Larry. Well, thanks, Greg. The last book that Steve Schneider wrote was Science as a Contact Sport, and it talked about the various challenges that scientists faced uh, indeed, the battles they often faced uh, when they went public and tried to convey their their uh, new ideas to the more general public. And uh, most of the book was about the role of climate scientists, uh, not just climate scientists, but other scientists as well. But in the last chapter of his book, he asked the question, what can the general public do to try to bring about a better world? And what he emphasized in that chapter was the importance of teaching the next generation, moving on and and conveying to the next generation what this generation has learned. And he included in the chapter, at the end of the chapter, the book ends with the words to a song written by Graham Nash called Teach Your Children. Now, it turns out we have absolute proof that Nick is a fan of Crosby, Stills, and Nash. And uh, it would have been nice to bring Graham Nash here to sing the song directly to Nick. I think that would have been a fitting way to finish this evening. Well, we weren't able to do that, but Greg, in his uh, wisdom, when Graham Nash was here a few weeks ago giving a concert, he cornered Graham and he said, uh, uh, we'd really like to... Uh, to regale you and to somehow get you involved. And so through Greg's work, uh, they created a video, which you're going to see, which involves Teach Your Children. But as you'll see, it's a little different from the usual performance by Graham Nash. So here's the video. You often end your concert with one of your um, famous songs, Teach Your Children. And now that you're a grandfather, we thought we would mix it up tonight and begin with a gift for you. Oh, Oh, look at this. I can't wait to see what's going to go on here. Oh, guitars too. Hmm.
very good. Well, Lord Stern, on the day that the jury selected you as the winner of the Stephen Schneider Award for 2013, I met Graham Nash in New York, and I told him who the winner was, and he recognized immediately, oh, yes, he was very impressed. So he couldn't be here tonight, but he did sign this book for you. Uh, this is his memoir, and he, and he wrote it to you. It's his tale of sex and drugs and rock and roll. But he, uh, 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 there's lots of good reading. It'll lift you up if you... Uh, um, so. that's, a, that's the Graham handshake. And to you. Uh, I've had the honor of interviewing many governors, senators, cabinet secretaries, etc. on this stage. Only one has ever come here and sat in the back of class and learned and listened it's my honor to introduce Governor Brown to come present the award. In the Thank you. Well, um, I have a little award here. I think this is the globe itself, but it's the Nicholas, to you, Nicholas Stern, the 2013 Stephen Schneider Award for Climates, Climate Science communication. There's a lot of science, but there's not a lot of good communication. We heard some of that tonight. So please keep it going. Congratulations. Thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I might say this is this is the place to get this award because wherever you look around the world, California is a place of surprise and change and invention. And while this whole climate debate and turbulence uh, has a lot of different forces and ideas, wherever I look, I see in this state, through many, many years, there are people pushing ahead, whether it's AB 32 or it's the energy efficiency standards or the renewable energy portfolio or all the various things they're doing. We got a long way to go. There's a lot of different views, but California has always been a dream standing out there. And I would hope that this award with this uh, great economist coming with his fine King's English can inspire us to uh, not be pushed back by the barriers and the propaganda and the inertia, but take some renewed energy that this is the state of the gold rush, Google and Twitter, and all the other stuff, good and bad, that makes for waves and change. And tonight, we're going to live up to this ward and make California push all the more further and bring other states and other countries along with your ideas. So thank, thank you. you. Thanks very much. Thank you, thank you Governor. Uh, we also have... I believe there's one or two previous winners. I'd like to ask Dr. Jim Hansen, Dr. Richard Alley, two previous winners of the Stephen Schneider Award to come on up here, close with the governor. Um, two other. Come on up, Richard. Come on up. That's, that's a hard jump. Thanks, Richard. You can stumble on it. Very nice to see you. Thank you very much. Thank you.